and we'll read the scripture for today is in Matthew 16, verses 16 through 18. Uh, So you can turn there in your Bible or follow along in your little handout. Matthew 16, 16 through 18. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are building your church, uh, that you have built your church to this point, that you will continue to build your church until you come again. And we thank you that, um, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that it will be victorious, that your church will, um, will join you, Jesus, at the wedding supper of the Lamb and in victory and in joy and in rejoicing uh, of all that you have done. Uh, God, we, just, we thank you and praise you for, for your church and, and for the privilege of being a part of it. God, teach us more. God, grow our vision of what uh, you're calling us to in being a part of your body. Lord, as Josh comes and preaches the word, I pray that you would give him your words, Father, that you would speak through him powerfully. Um, God, that you would give us each ears to hear and that we would be transformed and changed by your word this morning. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Great to be here. Um, I got an email this week from uh, Jane Anderson, and she got actually got saved at a Good News Club when she was five years old or six years old or something. So we have living proof of of uh, someone who who that was effective in their life. So I think that's really cool. This morning on the way to church, um, I had this goofy DVD on for the kids. Um, it was already on, so it was on when we got in the car. And, and it sings this song about Noah builds this ark. And, and I just jokingly uh, said, don't you think Ham, Shem, and Japheth helped him build the ark? Because it just says Noah built the ark, Noah built the ark. And Sabrina, with this incredibly, not, she didn't do this uh, to put me down or anything, but incredibly wisely said, yeah, Dad, but just, just like Grandpa builds homes, we don't say all these other 50 people that are involved in building the home built the home, right? The, the subcontractors, the, those that hang drywall and, and uh, frame and all that stuff. And I thought that was so neat because what we're talking about, we're, ta- we're starting a new series, or we started last week a new series on the church. And uh, it goes right along with our memory text for this month, which is Psalm 127. The first two verses says... Um, Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. For it is in vain that you rise up early and go, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for the Lord gives his beloved sleep. But just those, those first two verses in particular about the Lord is the one who's building the house. The Lord is the one who needs to watch over the city. But it doesn't abdicate us from our responsibility. But our, our labor, I mean, he says, unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor... Those who labor, are those who build labor in vain. So there are people building in that context or that passage. And in the same way, the church, uh, unless the Lord builds his house, you know, globally, we talked last week about the church universal, 
um, all people everywhere who call upon the name of Christ, unless the Lord's the one building it, it's, it's in vain. It's just, it's not going to last. And likewise, unless the Lord builds this local house right here, um, unless he's the one behind it, above it, on, on each side of it, and underneath it, building, then all of our labor's in vain. But if we seek to build and labor underneath God, and supported by Christ, and with him on either side, and with all of his instruction, all the resources he would give us, then it certainly is not in vain. When we do a series like this, and starting a new year, you know, New Year is a great time just to think, okay, this next year, what do we want to see happen? What do I want to see happen in my life, my family? It's also a good time to think, what do we want to see in the church? Uh, It's a defined period of time, 2014. We'd like to see some measurable things where we see God working and doing things just like we did last year. It's a great time uh, for for us to, um, under God and under his direction, uh, reposition ourselves if we need to and tweak some things and also dream a bit. Um, Because there's a great thing that, uh, just like I mentioned earlier, unless the Lord's building the house we, we build, we labor in vain. The great thing is Christ is building his house. Christ is building his church. This passage that was read by Mark here a few minutes ago, it's a very well-known passage. Um, It's uh, uh, no doubt many or most, maybe all of you have heard this passage before where Jesus says famously, I will build my church. The gates of hell, or literally the gates of Hades, the gates of death itself will not prevail against this church. And Christ is building this church. And for all the blemishes of the church, and there certainly are blemishes in the church, we are, we are not this radiant bride yet. He's coming for this radiant, beautiful, spotless, pure bride. But we haven't arrived there yet, so there certainly are blemishes. But for all the blemishes of the church at large, and, and yes, us too, we have blemishes too, don't we? We haven't arrived yet either. Uh, Christ loves his church. Christ loves his church. And I, for those that spend a lot of time disparaging the church, um, you know, I get concerned about that because they're knocking Christ's bride, right? They're messing with his girl, and he doesn't like that. And so uh, for all of the blemishes, all the needs for growth in the church and transformation, uh, and no doubt we could, we could name things that we just think, boy, really needs to be changed uh, in the church, Uh, It's Christ's bride. It is his church. He's building it. He loves it. He's committed to it. And so this morning, I want to just spend a bit of time talking about when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What is he building? What is this thing called the church that he's building? So that's one question I want to answer. And then I want to end with how should we respond? How should we respond? So what is he building and how should we respond? respond. The word church, the Greek word ekklesia, literally means called out ones or called out assembly. It's an assembly of people called out. Called out to what though, right? Called out for what and to what? Called out from what, for what, and to what? So here's my, here's my big idea that I want to spend the rest of the time supporting this morning. Uh, Jesus Christ is building a called out assembly or called out people to be his people who gather together, participate in his life, walk in his light, and commit to his mission. I want to say that one more time. Jesus Christ is, committing to, is committed to building 
a called out group of people to be his people who gather together, participate in his life, walk in his light, and are committed to his mission. So I, I have a few points I want. I want to take that step by step, okay? So he's building a group of people who are called out to be God's people. So first, this group of people, they, they are a group of people whose identity is that they are God's people. They are God's people. This is a fundamental identity of the church. And you may say, well, yeah, I know that. But do you live with that understanding? When we gather together, we are gathering with this amazing group of people called God's people. These are not just neighbors. These are not just Ankeniites or Iowans. These are God's people we are gathering with. Now, this idea of this assembly or this church being God's people finds its roots in the Old Testament in at least a couple of places. Um, The nation of Israel, under the leadership of Moses, was called God's assembly. In fact, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek-written Old Testament, the same Greek word ekklesia is used to define the Israelites. They were God's assembly that he called out of the land of Egypt. In fact, when God sent Moses to Pharaoh, what did he say? He said, go tell Pharaoh, what? Let my people go. Let my people go. But there's another place that this finds its roots in the Old Testament and probably uh, more, more, um, more directly identifies the church from an Old Testament promise perspective. And that is that the church is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. That in him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That all the nations of the world would be his people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that he has called a group of people out of darkness and into light. He's called a group of people and he's made them his possession. So the new covenant promise was that God would be our God and we would be his people. This is spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, that the new covenant would be that he would write his law in our hearts, that he would be our God and we would be his people. So this is an identity thing. This is an identity thing. I mean, you think of what is your identity? Well, most fundamentally, or what, one, one thing that comes to mind, if I say, what, what are you about? Or what is your identity? If you're a man, you'd say, well, I'm a man. I'm a husband. If you're married, I'm a father. If you have children. Well, fundamentally, part of your identity is that you are part of the people of God. What an amazing thing. What an absolutely amazing thing. There is hidden treasure in this truth. Your identity as part of God's people, part of God's chosen people, people that he's called out of darkness to be his choice people, is more fundamental than the family you belong to. You believe that? It's more fundamental than the company you work for. It's more fundamental than a club or a group that you're part of in any significant way. This is an identity thing. When the Bible starts uh, referring to identity things, it's, it calls for us to have a mindset shift, right? Okay, you are part of God's people. It's more fundamental than the family you belong to, the business you work for, the cl- a club you're part of, or a group you're part of that you're part of in a significant way. And it's a greater privilege to be named among this group 
than if you were part of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Amen? Okay. That'd be cool though, wouldn't it? Or if you were part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Luke, it'd be cool, wouldn't it? Huh? Or if you were part of the Nobel Peace Prize community, this is a greater privilege to be considered among God's people than to be among any of, the, any of these other groups. You belong to God. Now, this idea that, that we belong to him, that we are his chosen possession, has much more. I think that probably has connotations like, ooh, that feels restricting. But it has more to do with his commitment to you than you being called to be committed to him. Certainly, you are being called to commit, be committed to him. But it has much more to do with, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will commit myself fully to them. So, this church that Jesus is building is a called out group of people who identify themselves fundamentally because of what Christ has done as the people of God. This new covenant blessing that he will be our God, we will be his people, was accomplished or purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ. He will build his church and his church will be people who will identify themselves as God's people. Second, they are a group of people. This church that Jesus is building, this group that Jesus is building, is a group of people who are not loosely connected in some unidentifiable way, but they are a group of people who gather together in a worshiping and loving community. In other words, they're, they're an assembly and they actually assemble together. It's unlikely that Jesus would have ever used this word church, that's translated church, or assembly or congregation if he didn't have this in mind. That they're a group of people who congregate, who gather together in worship and in service of one another. He is building a people called out of our own individual autonomy, and that's where we are by nature, right? We want to just do things our way, especially rugged individualism of, of the United States of America. We just love to be on our own and strike out our own path. God is calling us out of that into a worshiping community where we worship God and we serve one another. The common vibe that is prevalent in our day right now of I do church by myself, I, I meet with God by myself, with my Bible or in my heart or with my computer, just doesn't seem to square with all of the New Testament. The assumption is in, the, in, in all of the New Testament, and Jesus certainly is assuming that here, is that those who will call themselves the church and they're called God's people they will find a group to get together with. They will be congregating together. They'll be worshiping together. They will be serving one another. And they assemble together, and I've already said this, and they have a vertical aim and a horizontal aim. They have a vertical aim in that they worship God. And I say that first because that's primary, is that we come together, and Jesus would have it that we would come together and primarily find ourselves in awe of God and worshiping God. To worship God is ultimate because God is ultimate. Amen? To worship God is ultimate because God is ultimate. But we don't just worship God, we also serve one another. 
Over and over again in the New Testament, there are these, there's this phrase, one another, serve one another in love, be hospitable to one another, greet one another with a, with a holy kiss or with, a, with an affectionate embrace. All of these things, they, they assume that we are getting together and we're doing these things with one another. This is what Jesus is committed to building. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews concerned that some were forsaking this idea of getting together, forsaking the gathering together, said, do not forsake the gathering together, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So don't forsake gathering together, but, but encourage one another and even all the more as the days are dark around you. So Jesus is building his church and it's a church It's a community of people who identify themselves as God's people and gather together to worship him and serve one another. Number three, it's also a group of people who celebrate his life, excuse me, who participate in his life together. Participate in the life of Christ together. I love this passage. I felt like there was, I felt like there was just, my eyes were open to see something. In this passage, I hadn't seen before. And it's from maybe the most common phrase in it. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let me back up though. Each organization, each organization, everyone has a life or a spirit about it. When a basketball team is down by 30 points and they make a run, they make a 15 point run or something to get back in the game, or at least a little bit, the commentators will say, They're showing signs of life, right? They're showing some signs of life. They're getting back in the game. When I was in high school, I went to Ankeny High School. We'd have pep rallies before big games, maybe before every game, I can't remember, but certainly before a homecoming game or something like that. And what was the the atmosphere called in one of those pep rallies? School spirit, right? We all got our shirts on. We're all singing rah, rah, rah. We're singing the Ankeny song. There's school spirit. The community of God called the church also is meant to be filled with life and spirit. Christ is building something that will have life and spirit. But it's not just some kind of inspirational life, a little pick-me-up for a moment or for a day, or something to send me on my way with nice thoughts about the weather or whatever. It's much more than that. It's not the kind of life that comes and goes. In fact, it's the kind of life for which death itself is no match. Death cannot compare with the life that Christ wants to build in his church. Death itself cannot compare with the kind of life that Jesus wants to build into his church. You might say, how can that be? Because the life that Christ wants to build in us is stronger than death. In fact, it's a life that defeated death. In fact, it's the very life of the resurrected Jesus Christ. In our text this morning, in verse 18, it says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that Jesus is going to build. Now, I know I've said this before, and maybe you have too. I just, I insert in there, Satan and his kingdom will not prevail against the church. I think that's okay to say. But what it actually says here 
is the gates of hell, or the gates of, the, 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 word, the Greek word is Hades. The gates of Hades. Hades was the place, it was the realm of the dead. The gates of death itself will not prevail against the church. Death is the greatest enemy for every human being alive, right? Death is our greatest enemy. Every one of us faces it. The gates of death itself will not prevail against the church that Jesus is building. Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 1.18. He says, I am the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So, how do we come and participate in this life? I said participate, right? It's not just something out here that we think about, but it's something we are called to participate in. And I use that word participate very deliberately and very carefully. How do we participate in this life? This very life that Jesus wants to build into the church. Well, here's a few ways. We participate in this life through worship when we celebrate the risen Christ, the Lord of all. Doesn't something happen to you? Aren't you enlivened as we gather together and sing praises to Christ? Doesn't something happen to you? I mean, do you guys feel the spirit in here when we sing to the risen Lord, when we sing to the Lord of of lords and King of kings? Am I the only one here? Am I the only one here? I hear a couple people. Okay. There's a few of us anyways, okay? I'm joking. There's something that happens when we come together and we worship and we celebrate that Jesus has risen, that he is alive. There's something right now. Revelation gives us this picture of what's going on in heaven. And what's going on in heaven is that there's this worship service. And one of the themes of their worship is worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory, honor, dominion, power, and wisdom forever and ever. I'm paraphrasing some of that. Why is the lamb who was slain worthy to receive all of these things? Because he's not dead anymore, right? Because he's alive, because he has risen, because he was raised from the dead just as was foretold. So when we gather together in worship, we participate in the life of the risen Christ. And what, I mean, what happens when we worship? We feel this sense of of, of God's presence. The psalmist says that God inhabits the praises of Israel, of his people. God inhabits the praises of his people. As we worship, God is pleased and he comes and he visits us. The living God comes and visits us as we worship together. Another way we participate in this is through faith in Christ. Every single one of us is made a brand new creation in Christ. Every one of us is made a new person, a brand new person. We are made new and receive the very life of Christ. It's what being born again means. Being bo- Nicodemus had a great question. He says, how can a grown man be born again? And Jesus explained it. Here's how a grown man's born again. You need to be born by water and the spirit. A grown man or a grown woman or a five-year-old child is born again when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of them because Christ was risen from the dead. 
and infuses them with the very life of the risen Christ. This is what Paul is trying to get across to the, to the Romans in Romans 6. When he says, if you've died with Christ, or it says, um, we've been buried with Christ and we've been raised with Christ. It's what baptism represents or symbolizes. Someone goes underwater. It's that they were buried with Jesus. Their old, their old life, their old man was buried. They come up out of the water. What ha- what's that symbolizing? They've been raised to newness of life. We all, every single one of us, have the incredible privilege today, not someday in the future when we get our act together, but today by virtue of our faith in Jesus, we have the privilege of participating in the life of Jesus Christ, his risen, resurrected life. When Jim came up here last week and shared the testimony with us all of of Julie Mazina and just how she was so full of life, what was that? What was the Holy Spirit? Yes, but it was the spirit of Christ. It was the life of the risen Christ through the Holy Spirit working in Julie's life. It's not just Julie. It's not just a few people. It's not just half half the people. It is a privilege all of us have to participate in this life, to live in this life. And I'm getting on to my next. We can also participate in this life together. Together, we experience more of this life through the collective working of the Spirit, don't we? I can have a great time with my Bible and worshiping and praying by myself. And I like doing that. I can be kind of of a hermit uh, if I'm allowed to be. I have five kids, so I can't. Uh, But I'm not allowed to do that in a wife. But um, I can do that for a day if if I'm allowed to. But... It's, there's nothing that compares with gathering together with five or ten or, my goodness, a hundred people who have this life. And they're sharing it with one another. There is, I mean, just, okay, if you have life in Christ, you can only carry so much, right? But if somebody else has life and there's two of you and they're carrying the life of Christ, then you get together, there's more life. And then if you get together with a few more people, or if you get together with 50 people or 100 people, and my goodness, most of these people are living in this life. There is a lot of life. I think that is, um, in a way, that's what Paul's talking about regarding the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the manifestations of the Spirit of God. Each one is given gifts of the Spirit, whether it's a gift of word of wisdom, word of knowledge, tongues, interpretation, healing, miracles, prophecy, helps, encouragement, whatever it is, and we get together, and there's all this life of the Holy Spirit flowing and working together, and there is incredible, incredible life, the very life of the risen Christ. And then we also get to participate in this life in the future fully, and I would say this is the hope of our resurrection Through perseverance, because Christ was raised bodily, we too, one day, will be raised. And then we will know what Paul calls true life. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, um, teach those who who are wealthy to store up treasures in heaven so that, basically, so so that at the end, they may experience true life. So he's saying there's, there, there's life here that we experience in Christ and it's good and it's amazing and it's wonderful. We do it together. It's better when we're together. But there is a hope for the future 
that far exceeds anything we could possibly fathom. And it, it is the hope of our resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the mortal will put on immortality and death will be swallowed up in victory on that day. And all of our tears will be wiped away and every ache and pain in our body will be taken away because we'll get new bodies and we will reign and and worship and live together with Christ forever and ever. That is our final hope, the life that we get to share in, participate in through Christ. So Jesus wants this life in his church. He wants this life in his church. I think to be in a group of, and to be in a room of people and um, this big or bigger or smaller, to be in a room of people, a bunch of people who spiritually speaking have been raised from the dead, I think there ought to be a lot of life. I think there ought to be a lot of joy. I think there ought to be a lot of celebration. I think there, I think, I think there ought to be a lot of exuberant worship together. Number four, Jesus is building a church, building a group of people who walk in his light together. Those who walk in his revelation together. Here in our passage, going back here to Matthew 16, what happens here? What happens to elicit the praise of Jesus to Peter? Something was revealed to him. Light was shined upon, you might say, light shed on his soul. Light was shined on his soul and he, he blurted out. Sometimes you wonder if he did this by accident or something because of what happens you know, before and after with Peter. But anyways, he, he, shout, he, he, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you for you did not receive this on your own. You didn't receive this from flesh and blood. My father revealed this to you. And then he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Catholics, uh, the Catholic church has used this text to, um, and, and others too, I, but this is one of the linchpin passages that they've used to try to show that Peter was the first pope and first among a succession of popes. Um, because it's on the rock of Peter that the church will be built. Um, I, I think it's probably better understood on the rock of Peter's confession, the church will be built. What's, what's Peter's confession? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the one who's come to save his people from their sins. And you're the eternal son of the living God. So, Jesus is building a church. He's building a group of people who walk in his light together. Whose foundation is built on this common confession of Jesus Christ. Whose foundation is built on the foundation, whose foundation is built on Jesus himself. On this confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ and there is no other. There is no other Christ. There is no other Savior. There is no other Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. And he is none other 
than God himself, the eternal son of the living God. The one who came down in the flesh was not just a man. He was not just like another religious leader. He was God who existed eternally forever. And he came to rescue. And he came to gather to himself a congregation, a church, who will worship around this truth. Jesus is the Christ. There is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved, but Jesus Christ. And that's the foundation we need to be built on. So, but we walk in this light together. We walk in this light together. We build, the church is built on this foundation, on this rock of this confession of Christ. So we walk in this light together. But we also walk in the light of God's word generally together. Okay? Jesus is building a church of those who are committed to the words of God. Those who are committed to the scriptures, you might say. Old Testament and New Testament. I find it absolutely amazing that, because, you know, sometimes we read through the Old Testament, we're like, there's some things that are really hard to understand, and we wonder how relevant it is. And then you read through the Gospels and the book of Acts and the epistles. You're like, my goodness, these guys are quoting the Old Testament all the time. They must have thought the Old Testament was really important. And Jesus is building his house, his church, upon those, excuse me, he's he's building a church of those who will walk in the light of his word together. And I think he's also building, I want to just draw out one, one more thing. I think he's also building a church who walk in his light together, meaning that they are walking in the light and not in the darkness. They're walking, they're seeking to follow after Christ. And I get this from 1 John chapter 1. John says in 1 John chapter 1, he says, this is a message we heard and we proclaim to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in, in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We don't walk perfectly. We all stumble. We all sin in probably many ways. If you have a mouth and you open it and use it, most certainly you do. I know that I do. And James says we all, we all stumble in many ways. But we are seeking to walk in the light. John goes on to say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I take that to mean at least partially what John means by walking in the light is not being deceived that we have somehow arrived, but being humble and confessing our sins. So Jesus is building a house. He's building a church, a congregation of people who walk in his light together. Finally, he's building a church, congregation of those who live for his mission together. At this point, if I were to stop the message or if I were just to somehow end it here and not have any more major points to make, uh, it may 
appear that Jesus wants the church to be isolationists, kind of like an island out on its own, you know, uh, the bad world over here and the church kind of over here and keep, you know, just stay away from them and keep them out and we stay over here. And, but that is not at all the heart of Christ. If we stopped here, we may be orthodox in our affirmation of many doctrines, such as the doctrine of the Trinity, the gospel, the atonement, uh, about the, the scriptures, their authority, their inspiration on baptism, on sin, on heaven and hell, etc. We may be very orthodox in our doctrine on many things, and it's important to be orthodox in our doctrine, but if we stopped here, we would fall far short of what Christ is committed to building. I mean, how, did, how the heck did you get here? How did you get in this building, that, this church that Jesus... I'm not talking about this church, but how did, you, how did you get in this thing that Jesus is building? One time you were out there, right? One time we were all out there. Paul says, remember. I mean, he, he says in, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, remember that at one time you were separate. You were alienated. You were, you were a child of wrath. You were, you were lost beyond your wildest dreams. And it was at that time that he came and saved you. Jesus says, I will build my church. The thought came to me, this is not new to me because I've heard this before. But the thought, it just, I was reminded of something I'd heard, and you probably, many of you probably have heard this before too. Jesus is interested in building a church that is, much, that is less like a museum and more like a hospital. Okay, museum, you walk in, everything's in place. Everything looks really nice. It's like, well, look at that, look at that. Well, look at that painting, look at that statue. My goodness, it's, it's perfect place and everything. There's no messes, you know. But a hospital is, people are running around. Uh, people come in in pain, they're screaming, I'm not saying we should be screaming here, but figuratively speaking, I've heard it put this way. The church is not a museum for saints. We all just come in and say, wow, you look good. And and you say back to me, man, you look good too. But it's more like a hospital for sinners. And I don't think our fundamental identity is that we're still sinners if you're in Christ. But we all come in with our brokenness, right? We all come in with our imperfections. We all come in with our stuff. And Jesus is committed to building his house, which is on this side of eternity is more like a hospital, less like a museum. Jesus wants to bring in all the nations of the world, people from every different kind of socioeconomical background, people from all different kinds of walks in life. He wants to bring them all in. His commission, which which honestly ought to be our mission above all other things, although we may work it out in specific ways, but our general mission is, has to be the commission of Jesus, who said after he was risen from the dead, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, go disciple all the nations of the earth. That's the commission given to the church, the early apostles immediately, and the church after. And we are called to do that. Jesus is interested in bringing in people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. He's interested in bringing in uh, old people and young people uh, from all different kinds of nationalities, all different kinds of economic statuses. 
This is the kind of church he wants to build. And if it's more like a hospital, well, it just makes sense because it was that way for us, right? When we entered into the church, we didn't come, uh, we didn't come with everything figured out. And so we need to live for the mission of Christ, which is making disciples, which is reaching out, which is seeing ourselves as a hospital to bring people in and care for them and certainly to care for each other as well. So is this the church that Jesus is building? Jesus says, I will build my church. Real quick, I want to end with this. How should we then respond? I think we should respond in five ways or four and then five kind of to wrap them all together. First is we should be unequivocally committed to connecting with the church. Connecting with the church. Not staying on the peripheral, on the edges. Not staying on the outskirts. But connecting in and with the church. If this is the church Jesus is committed to building, and this is the church he will build, and this is the church that will be victorious, even over the gates of hell, then we, every one of us, ought to be committed to connecting with the church, with a local church, not just the church in general. People, many people love the church in general, but don't like the one they're in, ever. Okay? I love the church, man. I, you know, like Paul, I do all things for the sake of the elect, you know. But then when it comes to being part of a church, they can't do it. Connect with the church. Connect with a specific church. Commit yourself to, number two, commit to growing. Commit to growth. Remember, we are not a museum, but a hospital. We're all receiving when we get together, triage. You know, we all have varying degrees of things we're dealing with. Sin and brokenness and struggles and trials and all these things. And so we need to be committed to growth, to growing, to growing up. That's what Christ is committed to. He's he's committed to, uh, to the church growing up to full maturity. And so, if that's what Christ is committed to, then I charge you and, 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 and commend to you to commit yourself to growth. Growth in the truth. Growth in serving one another and in loving one another. <clears throat> Number three. Participate in the life exchange that is the church. Okay? When you gather together, whether it's at a life group, at a men's meeting, here on Sundays, whatever it is, participate in this thing called a life exchange. That's what I would call it anyways, where you come with life and other people come with life and you're coming to give life, to bring life, to give it to others. You're pointed outward at other people like, I have something to give and I'm going to give it. I'm going to find someone to give it to. And if the first person doesn't want it, I'll find somebody else, okay? And heck, maybe I'll give it to five people, okay? So give life, this life exchange. Look for people you have life to give. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit of God, you have life to give. Look to give it away. 
and receive life. So participate in this life exchange. You're giving, you're receiving. When I, when I get up here and preach on Sunday morning, my greatest desire is to give you life. That's what I want to do. I have no interest in just getting up here and then patting myself on the back because I spoke for 45 minutes in front of, in front of a group of people. I want to give you life. That's my greatest desire. We should participate in this life exchange of giving and receiving life. Number four, reach out to those outside the church. I'm not going to say much here because we'll talk about this more, I think, probably in another message, but reach out to those outside the church because you have life not just for those here, but for those outside this building. Um, and we all have people in our lives that I was talking to someone the other day and um, I can't remember who it was, but I said, I mean, just, I was just being honest with them. I said, you know, usually my, my, um, my conversation goes well with my neighbors until I have that first conversation about Jesus. And then sometimes things get really weird. And then it's easy to be like, okay, I won't do that again. But we need to keep reaching out to those who are outside the church. Finally, last, we are to do all of these things by faith. We're to do all of these things by faith. The fundamental tenet, or one of the fundamental tenets of the Christian faith is this. It's Romans 1. It says the just or the righteous will live by faith. When we gather together, Do we come expecting to receive life? Do we come in faith to give and receive life? When we come together, do you come expecting to receive something for your own nourishment and growth? Or are you just showing up because church is something Christians ought to do on Sundays? We ought to do all of these things. When you're reaching out to your neighbor, this is probably where I fall short, are you reaching out in faith? That you have good news for them. That you have something to give them. When you take a step of faith to connect in the church, maybe join a life group or a Bible study or go to a prayer meeting or go to a women's group, are you doing that in faith that you are going to be richly blessed? Or do you feel like your arm's being twisted to do it? This is the kind of church that Jesus wants to build. One that identifies themselves as God's people who gather together to worship God and serve one another, who experience his life. I mean, this kind of life, the, the, the very life of Jesus who was raised from the dead, who walk in his light, the light of his word, the light of this testimony, the light of this confession of who Christ is and who live for his mission. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you, God, that, um, that you are building your church. And it is and will be victorious because you're building it. It's not mainly up to us. It's not mainly up to us. We want to build underneath you. We want to build under your direction, under your instruction, with all the power and strength you would give us. 
but we want to labor because you are laboring. We want to we build because you're first building. And so God, the things that have been spoken today, some of them are things that we can do in faith that you are already doing this. And when we participate or partner with you, something amazing happens. And so God, I pray that you would inspire us. I pray that you would challenge us. I pray that we'd be deeply encouraged. God, I pray that our gatherings together, whether it's here on Sundays or life groups, would be so full of life. So full of life. Would you guys join me in praying for this? I trust you want this too. So full of life, God, that we would be overflowing, filled to overflowing, and life would flow out of us like Jesus said like rivers of living water, like we heard last week, a testimony last week of just a real example of how that, what that looks like. God, that when we get together, it'd be such life, such a sharing of this, this life that we have in Christ, the very life of the spirit of Jesus, that we'd be filled. We'd walk in your light, God, the light of your truth, the light of who Christ is, that he is the Christ. There is no other Let us be clear on that. We want to be founded on that foundation. There's no other. Jesus, the eternal son of God, came and he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the things you're doing here. And God, I pray for an increase. I pray for your blessing. I pray that your spirit would visit us more and more and more powerfully. That we would come together Each one of us, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, when you gather together, each one has something, has something to give, that we would come together having something to give. Each one of us. God, we worship you. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Be a couple of us up here to pray with anyone who has need of anything this morning. Um, May the Lord bless you today. You're dismissed.